You're listening to the Wisdom Track podcast from the British Association of Anger Management, or BAM for short. This is the March 2021 episode, Mental Health in the Age of COVID. We're discussing the psychological after effects of the pandemic and lockdown. With us are trauma and bereavement specialist and homeschooling mum, Ronnie Turner, clinical psychologist, Dr. Stephen Blumenthal, who's written about the effects of lockdown for The Guardian and The Daily Telegraph, BAM senior advisor and Mankind project leader, Emeritus Craig Snake Bloomstrand, BAM founder, the anger guru, Mike Fisher, and me, your host, Steve Bill. Right. So, Zoomcast or podcast, the wisdom track is where BAM takes a holistic look at our core values of increasing self-awareness, honing emotional intelligence, and learning communication skills. You can find us over at angermanage.co.uk, and please subscribe to our channel, The Wisdom Track, over on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. If you are watching the recording on YouTube, remember to smash that like button and leave a comment because those things do give us um, a big advantage when it comes to getting the video in front of more people. Basically, the algorithm chooses. And if it sees more likes and more comments, it'll introduce the content to more people. My name is Steve Bill. I'm a journalist that first met Mike when I wrote a feature about anger management for Arena, the men's magazine. With me today to discuss mental health in the age of COVID are BAM's in-house experts and some special guests. Let's meet them now. Ronnie Turner. So working with Compassionate Care Training, Ronnie delivers workshops all over the UK, including working with Stillbirth and Neonatal Death Charity and the Royal College of Midwives. My mother was a midwife. Ronnie is a mum to a very bubbly six-year-old and understands the challenges of parenting and homeschooling during COVID times. And we're going to talk about that specifically a little later on. Also joining us as a special guest today, Dr. Stephen Blumenthal, a psychoanalyst and expert on male toxic behaviour who writes regularly for the Daily Telegraph, The Guardian and more. Joining us from BAM, Craig Snake Bloomstrand, Senior Advisor for the British Association of Anger Management and a resident columnist over on the BAM blog. Head over there right now if you'd like to browse his article, The Endless Winter, about the pandemic lockdown situation we currently find ourselves in. It's not rude, by the way, if you want to kind of read it at the same time as listening to the podcast. That's, that's absolutely fine. Lastly, introducing BAM founder, the anger guru, Mike Fisher. Guys, thanks very much for being with us today. So let's start by taking a snapshot of the current situation regarding mental health and COVID. Now, statistics are everywhere, and I've got a few I'd like to mention, but there were two anecdotes that stood out in particular in my research. 
One, um, just from the end of February, so a couple of weeks ago, a 22-year-old paramedic called Kieran McClelland told Sky News that his ambulance shifts are being taken up entirely by mental health emergencies. So not COVID emergencies, mental health emergencies for an entire ambulance shift. Uh, so here's some of those statistics. Um, in mid 2020, depression rates had doubled to one in five. And the Center for Mental Health has predicted that up to 10 million people, almost a fifth of the population, will need mental health support as a direct consequence of COVID-19. Now, in the Evening Standard yesterday, Owen O'Kane, who's formerly the mental health lead for the NHS in West London, has coined the phrase post-pandemic stress disorder. He said a lot of people have been affected by trauma, whether it's PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, or PPSD, which is what he calls his post-pandemic stress disorder, you won't see the full impact at the time. You will only see it a few months later. If we don't take this seriously, we're going to have a very unwell group in the population for years to come. And that was in the Evening Standard yesterday. Now, of course, certain demographics and sectors have been hit disproportionately by COVID-19 and the measures to keep it contained. The young, women, minorities, and anyone who's lost jobs, businesses, or those with health conditions who have lived in abject fear, and of course, those of us who've lost loved ones. Now, it's not actually all doom and gloom. There are some people who apparently are happier now. And uh, we could maybe take a look at that later. Um, couples in healthy, re close relationships, by the way. And um, on April the 24th, next month, the next Wisdom Track podcast is going to be all about keeping love alive and how you can maintain intimacy and a bond in a close relationship. So uh, obviously even more necessary in the pandemic. Um, and we've also heard that the pandemic could improve working conditions long-term as well. And Action for Happiness, the charity, says one of the potential benefits is just simply having more conversations around mental health and more compassion and understanding to anyone who's suffering. UK government has pledged half a billion squid of extra spending on mental health services this year. And uh, they've committed an additional 2.3 billion a year, says Nadine Doris, who's now Minister for Health, Suicide Prevention and Patient Safety, which, by the way, is £300,000 under what it was supposed to be. But that's for another time. So I suppose the questions here are, how do we know when we really need help with our mental health or, or we just need to build some resilience because we're going through a challenging time? What does our mental health suffering due to COVID actually feel like? Is it anxiety? Is it depression? And what do we do about COVID and anger? There are many ways that the current situation can trigger anger issues and what coping strategies can we fall back on? Moreover, what can we do to help others? 
So there's a lot of approaches here. So let's go around the panel first and ask what they consider the definition of mental health to be in this regard. And maybe you guys could talk a little about your own experiences of mental health, share a little about what it's been like for you in the pandemic. So Ronnie, if you'd like to go first, and I'm not sure if Mike has to unmute you or you have to unmute yourself. I'm, I'm not muted. Marvellous. <laughs> okay, hi everyone. So I, I'm not sure I have a clear definition of mental health. I've never liked the term. I've never liked it because it somehow implies that mental health is all up here. It's all in our heads, which I don't think it is at all. And I've always felt that, although of course you, you, you know, there are clear sort of, you know, mental health conditions, you know, our own mental health is, is so um, intricately woven with our emotional health um, and, a, and a, a, those, those two things operating. Um, together. So yeah, I don't like the term myself. Um, however, um, I think my own experience uh, is, is interesting. It's been interesting for me to reflect on my own experience leading up to this, um, because I actually have a mental health issue myself. I, I suffer from a form of OCD. And it's been interesting to reflect on how that has been affected by COVID. Um, and yeah, so basically at the beginning for me, I was, I, I'm sure along with a lot of other people, um, you know, horrified when, when the pandemic first uh, emerged and erupted, just watching it happen, riveted to the news, watching the death toll rise. Um, there was all the panic buying. It was a really, really scary experience. Um, however, I also, with enforced lockdown, felt a sense of relief um, to be forced off my treadmill, um, which was quite interesting to see, to see that happen. It made my life so much simpler. And I, I really enjoyed that, actually. It was a real sense of relief, which is sort of interesting in terms of how I'd been living my life and, and reflecting on that. So it was a weird mixture of fear and stress and then relief for just the simplicity of, of this new life. But as time has gone on, um, I won't talk about homeschooling yet because otherwise I'll you know, get, into, get into something else. But as time has gone on, I definitely, you know, having endured second lockdown and a, and a winter, I'm now feeling like I've flipping had enough and, um, and really you know, desperate to have more interaction with other people. Um, but interestingly, because it has been so stressful, particularly for me, the childcare and homeschooling, the wall-to-wall childcare and homeschooling, um, and the effect of that, I would say, has exacerbated my, my condition. It's forced me, it's forced me to explore ways of looking after my mental stroke emotional health much, much better. And it's led me to have some really, really positive experiences, which I hope to share a bit later. But I'll leave it there for now. Marvellous. Yeah. We await with basic breath. <laughs> Thank you for that, Ronnie. Um, Stephen, could you tell us a bit about what you consider the definition of mental health 
to be, especially in this particular regard, and how you felt during this time. Well, hi, everybody. Um, I work with quite a range of people with a lot of variety of, uh, of mental health problems. So uh, somebody said it should be more to do with uh, emotional well-being, which I think is one part of mental health, but it's, it's, uh, it's only one part. Uh, because I, I would work with people who are, are, are on a much more extreme end of, uh, of suffering from mental health problems with uh, distortions of perception, for example, right through to people who are struggling with depression, anxiety, and, and, and so forth. Um, and uh, what I don't like is the definition of mental health or emotional well-being to be too much associated with happiness uh, and sort of optimism. Uh, and there's a whole sort of band of, uh, of, of sort of uh, people, sort of the, the sort of optimists kind of trying to associate emotional well-being or uh, mental health with, with, um, with positivity, with, uh, with happiness. Um, I think it's much more to do with uh, meaning, finding meaning in life, finding meaning in the things that we do. Uh, so uh, I quite like Freud's definition of what, uh, uh, of what well, emotional well-being is about, what life is about, which is to be able to love and to work. Uh, to love is to be able to have a relationship with somebody else, to be able to experience intimacy and engage with another human being on a one-to-one -one level and find meaning in that relationship. And to work is to really find meaning in your work, to be able to really have a relationship with yourself uh, in a sense. And I think when you uh, are suffering from problems with mental health or uh, emotional, uh, uh, or a lack of emotional well-being, your, uh, your emotional resources are really, uh, caught up in trying to resolve those problems, trying to resolve problems associated with uh, suffering. For example, if you are experiencing uh, paranoia, that somebody is talking about you, or depression, where you keep ruminating about um, uh, something that you might have done or something that has gone wrong in the past, then you can't really deploy your emotional resources uh, with uh, your close relationships and in your work. Uh, so uh, in that sense, I think uh, in the course of the pandemic, um, there are some, and I liked what Steve said there, that, uh, that not everybody has been affected negatively by the pandemic. There's such a range of um, uh, responses. Many people have their, li their lives and their uh, livelihoods have been enhanced by, um, by the pandemic. But there are some people within our community who are really suffering, obviously. Um, and, uh, that, and there's a range of suffering in relation to that. I don't like this term uh, post-pandemic stress disorder or post-traumatic stress disorder. This, to me, um, sort of... Uh, generalizes, when you overuse a term, then it becomes meaningless. And I think 
the term post-traumatic stress is becoming meaningless in this context. There are, of course, people suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. There are two problems with post-traumatic stress, actually. First of all, the post, we don't know because we have to get through it first. So uh, we, we will only know it when, there's a, when we come out of it. The other problem is um, trauma. Um, I think the vast majority of people have not experienced trauma. Trauma is when you know um, you're a uh, you're a, um, a, a fireman trying to rescue people from the twin towers when it's collapsing, and you can't get out of your head uh, the images of carnage that you see before you of people jumping from um, you know from uh, sort of eighty stories or something like that. Uh, there are some people, obviously, who have suffered post-traumatic stress as a result of this, nurses in the front line. But for the vast majority of people, I don't think that's the case. There's certainly tragedy, um, and uh, it's a major life event for all of us. Uh, so uh, I would just take issue with post-traumatic stress. But certainly well-being is majorly affected, and I've found that a lot in the course of my work. Thank you. So, Snake, in your column that you wrote, The Endless Winter, it discussed the sort of seemingly open nature of the pandemic, the open-ended nature of the pandemic, the uncertainty it creates. I mean, is that your part of the sort of definition of mental health in this conversation? And what's it all been like for you? Yeah, I mean, I really agree with what Stephen's saying is that it's not over yet. Uh, the pandemic, we're anticipating uh, the clouds breaking out and the sun coming up, but the full impact is yet to be revealed. Um, so I believe that we've all, that we're all currently suffering some measure of trauma uh, simply by having our lives upset and certainly by the isolation. Um, I'd more like to focus on, uh, again, definitions, but on maintenance, which has been very difficult because I look at mental health, mental emotional health as, do you recognize when you're emotionally compressed and are you able to decompress? And leading into that, are you able to accurately interpret your emotions as a result of that process? In my life, that keeps me more or less on an even keel and I can have access to a wide range of emotions because over the years I've learned to interpret them, disregard some, uh, pay attention to others. And that for me has been incredibly difficult in isolation. In terms of my day-to-day -day world, I have a lot of interaction with people and it's all through a screen. I really miss the physical connection with people and being able to sit in the same space and read body posture and inflection in a clear way face-to-face. -face. What that's done for me is and we spoke earlier in a ramp up around this. We've got, I haven't seen my grandkids other than outside for nearly a year. I wonder who they've turned into in that time. 
because I've spent so little time with them. That's an unknown. I feel sad about that. And the same for many people that I'm close to in my life. Uh, it's different. And I don't know quite what to do with that. I don't have a template for coming out of the kind of isolation that we've been in. At a personal level, my wife and I both have a reasonably strong appetite for being introverts. Uh, being quarantined at home hasn't been a real stressor for either one of us. In many ways, it's been somewhat of a relief. We get to stay home and we like where we live. It's comfortable and it's set up. And both of us run our businesses out of the home. So it wasn't all that unusual. But it's the interaction with people that I miss the most. And I see how it's interrupted my ability to decompress by telling my story, by having those conversations with close friends. Uh, it's through both thinking about it in my own head, but also expressing it and having it witnessed that I'm better able to sort through what's going on with me in any given time. And I miss that. A um, couple of weeks ago, I did an intensive for 10 men up in the woods, and it was gestalt type of work and a lot of uh, interaction and face-to-face. -face. And I was really aware with everyone wearing masks, a lot of cues got missed. And so the normal way to connect with people has changed. And I wonder how that's going to show up once we emerge from our shells. I live in Minneapolis and we've had lots of upsets socially over the last year. And another wrinkle that's a byproduct of COVID is uh, crime in Minneapolis has gone up 800, 900% in a year. So no one's real clear what neighborhoods are safe to go in, which neighborhoods aren't, all of that has been upset where I live as well. And I know across the US, that's true in a lot of different areas. Uh, we can't count on our physical safety and need to learn that all over again. And so there's many different stressors that I'm anticipating have no way of having a plan as to how to address them. And I'm sure they're gonna bring up different emotions than I've felt in the past. Uh, I'm hoping some of that will be eased because we'll also be able to sit face to face again. Um, but those are some of the things that are on my mind with regard to this is how important it's been for everyone to maintain their psycho-emotional health and find adaptations, methods to be able to do that. And I think that's certainly new in our worlds uh, and somewhat global in its impact. So I'll leave it there for now. Well, I read one journalist say, and uh, forgive me, I can't remember who she was. Uh, my, my biggest fear is things never going back to normal. My second biggest fear is things going back to normal. Yeah. And so and we only have the, the, you know, the one or the other. And what, what's most likely to happen is is actually completely unknown and uncertain and in places quite scary. So, Mike, what, what do you consider the definition of 
mental health to be in this conversation we're having and how's lockdown been for you? So firstly, I, I, I appreciate that I go last because it gives me an opportunity to really think into and think through what's being said. Um, and I've, I've really enjoyed the, the comments that have already been made. Uh, so when I was starting to think about this idea of mental health as well as emotional well-being, what I was really struck by is that I think that most people have probably suffered from mental health issues as well as well-being issues most of their lives. And based on COVID, um, and I was just looking at the date, I remember I went into isolation in the 17th of March last year when I flew back to where I live in Spain. But if I can keep it very simple, for me, it's a disassociation. It's a disassociation from myself, and it's also a disassociation from others. But then, of course, there's different degrees of emotional and mental health issues. The thing about COVID, what that has done is completely exaggerated and amplified it. Now, you know, some people would probably say, well, that might not be a very pleasant thing. But from my perspective, I think it's very positive. And the reason I say that is because it's brought mental health to the forefront of our awareness and our consciousness, meaning that we have to take it absolutely serious. Because if we didn't take it serious, all that would happen, whether we have COVID or not, it will just get worse and worse over a period of time. Um, Steve, I was really struck by the statistics that you mentioned with regards to what the government, this government is investing in mental health. Um, you said it's uh, half a billion and over a period of time, it's gonna be 2.3 billion. Personally, I don't think that's enough. But what I do remember very clearly is when labor was in power, the mental health bill was 100 million. The physical health bill was 80 million. And since the conservative government has been in power, they shredded the mental health bill to 90 million. So there's something to be said about, thank God, we're taking it as seriously as we possibly can for future generations. But within the context of, you know, some of the comments that were made, um, and, I, and I, I appreciate what you said, Stephen, around, you know, you're not comfortable with the word post-traumatic stress. Um, and also, you know, post-COVID stress, because actually right now, I don't think it's post-traumatic stress. I think it's traumatic stress that people are experiencing right now. And of course, for me, one of the major, major concerns is how are people who have already been ill from COVID going to manage and deal with long COVID, never mind the physical impact, but also the psychological impact. So for me, I have a real interest in what that might look like within, say, the next one to five years. Um, the other point that I want to make, in, other, in fact, the other two points that I want to make, and, and, I, and I want to be very clear about this. I see positive, I see COVID as being very positive. Now, some of you might be thinking, how can I say things like that? Well, one of the reasons I say 
uh, that it's positive is because we have, and I want to include myself in that, we have and I have just taken so much for granted in my life, which I'll come to in terms of my own direct experience. But the, the other point is that often I say in my work that there are two cracks that come up when people go into crisis. The one crack is our intimate and our personal uh, relationships will always, when they're under duress, will definitely in some way or another manifest as some kind of psychological or emotional disorder, mental health issue. That's the one thing I want to say. The other thing is, and we can see this, and I have proof of that based on the work that I'm already doing. And the other thing is, uh, you mentioned kids earlier on, Rodney, about you know being at home or being homeschooled. Um, what's really interesting here, and also giving birth to children, that is another opportunity for cracks to really show through. When, if we haven't done our own personal development work and integrated our own neurosis or our own um, psychopathology, they are going to show up in those particular areas. However, I think with COVID, it has exaggerated and amplified those issues. And the fact is that I am really appreciative that, you know, there are so many more helplines that have come online Counselors and psychotherapists and psychologists are super busy. I am personally inundated um, with work. And I was saying to some of my colleagues and some of my groups, just in the last week, I calculated that I see anything between 102 and 120 people a week. So historically, the way I calculated it was the amount of hours I work. Now I'm cal calculating it based on the amount of people I see per week. So that's over 400 people, if you think about it, a month, which from my point of view is mind bending, as you can imagine, because I've never calculated in this way before. So coming back to my own um, experience, I really felt that I was managing COVID really well. But the truth is, I was in complete and utter and absolute denial. Yes, I am an introvert, so I do like the fact that I can be isolated. Yes, I am an extrovert, and I miss terribly the, con the contact. I'm 50-50. But for me, when I got to November of this year, last year, not this year, last year, I was completely overwhelmed and saturated. And I was becoming like an absolute grumpy old fart without really even appreciating how I was behaving, how I was, how I was uh, acting out, and also just my lack of empathy because I was, the only way I can describe it, I'd become so desensitized. So even though I was able to empathize, my capacity to empathize had diminished. Um, in recent months, one of the things I've noticed is I feel like a trapped animal. You know, I'm the kind of guy, whenever I've got extra income or disposable income, I get on a plane and I fly somewhere exotic in the world. And I just haven't been able to do that. I'm going, at the moment, I'm in East Grinstead, but next uh, Thursday, I'm going home to Spain, but I've been in the UK for three months. By the way, I've loved it. 
but it took a little while to acclimatize. But, you know, I just love Britain and I love being here. And because I'm an introvert, I don't have a problem about whether I go out or not. I've got enough to keep me busy. But I have felt like a dog in a cage without being able to actually get out. And of course, I've had to use my own internal resources to manage my own distress. And that's me, Steve. Thank you. You're on mute. Sorry, muted, muted. Thank you very much, Mike. By the way, everyone, I'm not wearing a hat because of my mental health. Um, it's to save you all from my Larry David haircut. International viewers, uh, <laughs> hairdressers are still shut here in the United Kingdom. Well, listen, homeschooling came up a few times then. R R Ronnie, do you want to tell us what it's been like? Yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, just before I tell you my experience, I think it's worth just sharing the, the, the latest statistics. So the latest stats from the ONS show that um, it, on average, 50%, well, it's over 50% of parents feel that homeschooling has adversely affected their mental health. And actually, 63% um, of parents have said that their children are struggling. So I think, you know, it's so important when we're talking about homeschooling, it's not just the parents, you know, it's, it's both. And I'm sure we've all heard stories, whether that will be on the news or, you know, our own friends, family or ourselves, and uh, just gone through such difficult times. I was, my daughter, she's nearly six, and I, she's actually been back at school for a few weeks now, part-time. But I was just coming out of the school gate last Monday when the older kids came back and this woman passed me. She didn't see me. She passed me. And I just heard her say, she's back. And I actually called out to her and said, God, that that sounded like such a big sigh of relief. And I thought she was going to laugh and her eyes filled with tears. And she said, it has been so tough and it feels so emotional bringing her back to school. Um, it, and I've, yeah, I just got the weight of that. I didn't really know the details, but it was it was significant. So um, with my own experience, um, me and my husband, we adopted a little girl three and a half years ago. Um, she was aged two and a half then. And obviously our lives, our lives turned upside down, but we, we really went through two years of, of kind of quite intense bonding. We don't live near um, family. We were quite remote from family. So, but literally we went through 18 months to two years with no breaks from childcare. It was incredibly intense. And we were just coming out of it when the pandemic hit. You know, she was just at school starting. She was there half time. And, you know, we were starting to do play dates and the pandemic hit. And it was, it was actually devastating. Um, for, for me and my husband at the time. And I, I think the thought of it was worse than the reality, but we were so exhausted. Um, now, actually, and I say it wasn't, you know, that bad in terms of the reality, the weather helped, it was fantastic weather. We're very, very lucky with a, with a big garden. But as time has gone on, of course we had a big summer holidays and then, you know, we're back into, we managed to be at school a bit before Christmas, but then, a winter lockdown has been so tough. Um, yeah, it's, I've had days when, when, when really we, we started sort of trying to homeschool, 
I found that I had days and days went into weeks of actually not getting anything done that I needed to do myself, like a phone call that I needed to make on Monday. I still hadn't done it by Friday. And that sounds quite extreme, but my daughter, she's, um, she is very, let me emphasize, very chatty. She's a people person. She hates playing on her own, you know, and obviously just having a single child, I'm mum, I'm teacher, I'm playmate, best friend, worst enemy, everything. Um, so, I actually could really feel the resentment building in me. And my husband uh, hit the nail on the head, actually, when he said that he'd noticed when he got angry with our daughter, it was because he wasn't, he wasn't meeting his own needs. So he, he was giving and giving and giving and he'd gone too far and had you know, just ignored the knocking at the door of, I just need a break. You know, I, I need this, I need to look at my emails. I just need a break. So, um, we've really taken that on now and I think I've definitely got perfectionistic tendencies I wanted to do all this homeschooling that the school had set and I've really had to um you know not make that priority I think it's easy to think that we should put our should put our children's needs before our own always you know well actually you know that's just it just doesn't work and there's that lovely analogy of um, you know, on the plane, putting your own oxygen mask on first and then being able to attend to those around you. Well, that's what I've really learned from it, that I've had to kind of lower my standards in so much as to um, look after my own needs. And if the telly needs to go on again, which isn't ideal, well, so be it, because that way I get to be an OK parent, you know, for the rest of the day and to keep some kind of connection with my daughter. Um, but it has been really, really tough. Yeah. Mm, it sounds like it has. Now, um, students, apparently, and I'm, I mean, I'm looking across the road now at a halls of residence where all these poor students were hoping to enjoy their first year of university in Shoreditch. And they're all shut in their rooms all day. And they come out at 10 o'clock at night, emboldened by a few cans of Cronenberg or craft beer or whatever it is, they gin or whatever it is they drink these days and they, they come out in huddles in the, in the courtyard. 70% of students say that their mental health is going to suffer as a, as a result. I mean, but what got anyone from the panel, has anyone got any suggestions for older kids and how they can you know, cope with their lives being uprooted like this? You know, I think something else that's good to mention is uh, some kids have thrived uh, doing work at home. I've got one grandson that is uh, nine years old, and he's done real well, and he's a bit of an introvert. And I've heard this about children that some have really thrived, some of the more kids who depend on social interaction have suffered. But what I find interesting is I'm finding the same thing true about the workplace. As people are deciding whether to go back physically to work or stay working from home, there's a split that has a lot to do with individual temperament. Some people have been able to work from home and outperformed what they ever did in the office. 
So now we're looking at reconfiguring work as well as school for very much the same reasons. And I, I wonder if what will come out of this is a way of uh, adapting to personal preferences in terms of what, what allows that creativity to fall. But I think both children and adults are gonna be impacted in a big way when we start moving back. Ronnie, what, what positive things might happen with, within the childcare space, the young childcare space, as a result of people taking a bit of a harder look at it under COVID. I mean, I've got a lot of friends with young children and like nursery fees are astronomical. And the matter seems to be a bit, at a bit of an on pass where both partners will work and one of them is working purely to pay the nursery fees. How, how is the conversation opening up, if at all? Well, I mean, that's that's not part of my experience, really. I, I, I must say, I think that, um, sorry, not really to answer your question. That's all right. But um, to kind of respond to what Snake said, I mean, I do think that, that it depends on the personality so much and it depends on the family, you know, how, the setup of the family at home. Um, some families seem to kind of, you know, get along better than others. Obviously, there are some children that are, are trapped in you know, um, terrible situations uh, or, or perhaps just somewhere in between where their parents are really stressed, you know, the, the, the work's been affected, income's been affected perhaps. I mean, I've got a friend, um, a, a friend of mine who's a single parent and she's juggling work with homeschooling two boys, one of seven and one of nine. And the one of nine has got some, you know, emotional issues, mental health issues. And it's just incredibly hard. He's kicking off all the time because he feels safe enough to do it. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know about the positive outcomes really. For some children, yes, but definitely for some children, no. I mean, apparently there's been a 10% rise um, of, of children. This is, I think, through um, Childline have reported that 10% more children are having counselling for loneliness. Um, mm. And the, there's an index report that the pr Prince's Trust uh, measure the try and measure the well-being of uh, young people between 16 and 24. And the January report that came out uh, fairly recently said that something like like staggering, like over half of young people in that age bracket report being either um, you know suffering from anxiety some of the time or all of the time. You know so. Uh, yeah, I'm. I'm. Of course, there's there's benefits from it from for some people, but I think there are huge problems, and and definitely with young people's social development, um, their emotional and social development at school, um, that happens as well, doesn't it? You know, so that's, it's not just about the education; it's about it's about loneliness and isolation. Um, yeah, so. Oh, that's, I'll leave it there for now. Mike, when does healthy anger around the pandemic start to become toxic? I mean, presumably we're all allowed to be a, a bit angry about certain things, or we might be forgiven for feeling a bit angry about certain aspects of the pan pandemic and the lifestyles it's foisted upon us. 
Oh, Mike is muted. <laughs> Mike, you got to unmute, mate. <laughs> I apologize. Um, thanks for asking the question because I, I've been thinking about that while we've been having this discussion. And for me, there's just something to be said about the amplification of our stress levels. You know, there is something to be said about people generally are able to manage their stress levels because they have a lot of activity in their lives and they have a huge amount of distraction. But there is something to be said about when we are in isolation with our children and our families and there is absolutely no distraction. Stress levels go through the roof and uh, in the work that I do, I say that you cannot separate stress, which is directly linked to anxiety, from anger. So I talk about stress fueling anger. And what I teach in my programs, of course, is how people need to take stress seriously, find ways of managing their stress. Because if you can manage your stress, you can potentially manage your anger. And you know, thematically, the conversations I've had with people in my groups and in my one-to-one -one is just the unbearable amount of stress that they're having to endure. And of course, if it's fueling anger, that's when they snap. But I'm not just talking about the parents. And there's something to be said about children. There's something to be said about teenagers as well. So some of the conversations I've had is how children have become a lot more aggressive to their siblings. Teenagers have become a lot more aggressive to their siblings. And of course, a lot more aggressive. And, and please, I'm using the word aggression as opposed to angry, a lot more aggressive to their parents. And we know this because we get the calls of desperation. We get a huge amount of calls with regards to anger management for young people and certainly children. So there's definitely, you know, I'd love to share a statistic with you, but that's going to be more difficult. But if we can manage our stress more effectively, we can manage our anger more effectively. And I know that there are some people here with us today who are already doing that. They've embodied it. Um, yeah, that's my answer. Thanks, Mike. Couple of uh, comments from the audience. Uh, which just so Cameron says, my 13 year old seems to be very happy under lockdown, happy not to go out. And sometimes I have to drag him out to be active. I wonder, though, the long term effects for his generation, a huge proportion of his life having been in lockdown and therefore no exploration or independence claiming. And Carol says self-care is fundamental. It's not selfish. It's paramount. Now, I mean, what we can see maybe here is almost sort of competition between mental health, physical health. Uh, they, you know, if some extreme arguments might be that uh, the, the mental health of the young has been sacrificed to give, you know, to extend the already quite generous lifespan of the older generation. Um, Stephen, 
What, what, did you, what, what, did, what kind of impressions are you getting from the debate that's going on about this within the healthcare sector? Um, well, I was just thinking about that last point, about both about young people and about uh, increases in anger. Um, early on in the pandemic, I wrote an article in The Telegraph on social claustrophobia, which I, call, I called it, uh, which I think is a sort of seems to be a kind of enduring issue through the through lockdown. Uh, and I suppose what I was saying in that was that um, in the Second World War, uh, after the Second World War, there was a huge increase in writing and thinking about attachment. And the reason for that is that people had been separated from their parents, children had been separated from their parents and uh, had to go and, uh, you know, during the Blitz had to go and live in the country away from their parents. And up until then, it wasn't really known properly that actually that really affected uh, children. It, you know, it was uh, sort of common practice, for example, for children to just be left on a pediatric ward, for example, without contact with their parents. So there was a huge a change in the way people thought about that and this explosion of research and thinking about uh, uh, attachment, Bowlby, uh, Harry Harlow, etc. I think one of the things about uh, the lockdown, it's not COVID, it's the lockdown actually, it's the consequences of lockdown, which is that we've had to be confined to barracks, obviously, and being forced together into family units and not interacting socially in the same way as that we used to. And I think that inevitably has an impact on uh, emotional regulation. Uh, we, we usually have the sort of, it's a bit like a pressure cooker where there's a release valve, which allows for, uh, you know, for you to let off steam. We need to be able to connect with people and then disconnect. We need a bit of space, don't we? Uh, and then when you're confined together like this, it has huge impacts on, on emotional dysregulation and can have all sorts of impacts in terms of anger and so forth. And you can see that from the statistics, the increase in mental health problems, which are not just about that. They're about a whole range of things like unemployment, for example, where you might get meaning from your work. That's a, that's a separate issue, which we can come back to. But I think in terms of our interaction and our, uh, with, with uh, our close people in, our, in close proximity, and you can see that by the increase in divorce rates all over the world, uh, there's a huge increase in divorce rates. There's also been a huge increase in domestic violence as well. And that obviously has huge impacts on the people involved, on uh, children particularly. And I do, I think I do really worry about children and young people in all of this because uh, we, uh, you know, we've made a decision as a society, uh, you know, sort of, whatever position you take on that, whether it's right or wrong, but basically to, as you said, extend the, 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 li the lifespan of people who are quite, you know, who are older. And uh, that has a direct impact on children, particularly, uh, because um, it's, 
disrupted their attachments just at the point at which young people, adolescents, for example, and, um, uh, you, you know, and I guess we, we sort of move from the close proximity of the, the family group to the outside, to the outside world, and we begin to learn social skills. Um, and of course, it's been good in some ways to have closer connections with adolescents, you know, to be able to uh, see them more and interact with them more. But there's also um, a massive uh, impact on them in terms of um, uh, having to pay the price for that. You know, they've uh, a year, uh, I heard Ian McKellen on the radio this morning saying that at 80, you know, a year has just been a nice rest for him. It's hardly any proportion of his life. But for a young person, it's a huge proportion of life. And not only that, so they've lost out in terms of the development of social skills, and now they have to face the anxieties and uh, without the skills to interact with peers again. And that's, that can be quite frightening. Not only that, but they're also going to have to pay the price for the pandemic for the rest of their lives economically. They're going to have to contribute to a huge uh, national debt in every country across the world. You know, in terms of the vaccine, uh, it's all okay for us who are adults, but if you're, uh, you know, one should feel a little anxious about what impact a vaccine might have on a young person in terms of uh, whether, you know, that's gonna have any sort of lasting health impacts or impacts on fertility, for example. And of course, so they won't be able to, they may not be able to get a vaccine passport and travel, whereas the rest of us will be traveling. They'll be stuck at home paying off the national debt. Uh, and um, it's pretty crap for them, basically. Um, so they've had to deal with a, being in a sort of intense cauldron uh, of uh, interaction um, and now they're going to have to pay the price after. You have three teenage boys, don't you? Uh, I have two. Two teenage boys. My, my apologies. So, yeah, you're in, you'll be in the front line with the bank of mum and dad when the old uh, quantitative easing starts to hit. Uh, so um, we're going to have a contribution from the audience. Carol Lilly is going to chat. Carol, are you ready? Oh, yeah. Share yeah. what you had to say. Hey, Carol, thank you very much. My pleasure, Stephen. Yeah, no, Mike just mentioned if I if I wanted to just uh, talk a little bit about what I do. So, uh, yeah, so this is very much from a professional and a personal perspective. I very much resonate with a lot of what you've all said. And Ronnie, I've been at home with a teenage son and an 11 year old, both who have been impacted by COVID in different ways. And I've seen it develop in terms of, you know, struggling with their own emotional well-being. Um, I actually work for my local mind. So I'm an emotional well-being awareness trainer for uh, children and young people. So throughout the entire pandemic, I've been incredibly busy delivering webinars to youth professionals, to teachers, to parents. Um, and whilst I'm delivering, I've experienced a lot of what I'm talking about in my own life. So um, I, I do feel that we need to be very hopeful and be very positive. In fact, I'm very much on par with what Mike says about being positive. I see a lot of positives that have come out of COVID because mental health is now in the forefront. And it is the most important thing that schools are, are you know, focusing on now, which is, is paramount. Um, 
yes, young people have been incredibly impacted. However, there's been a huge amount of support for them. There has been a plethora of services, helplines, support for parents, support with uh, parental conflict, because yes, divorce has gone through the roof. However, my, um, I think my thought on that is the fact that if couples are divorcing throughout through the pandemic, it is not the pandemic that has caused the divorce. It's the pandemic that has exacerbated their issues within their relationship. Because if you have a happy marriage, you're going to get through COVID. Yes, it's very stressful being in the same house, you know, and you're all under the same roof. And it's and it can be, you know, very tiresome and very difficult. But I think that, you know, if you're experiencing that at home, it, it's just that COVID has exacerbated a lot of what was probably already formulating in the, in the background. And we do have the opportunity, you know, I as a mental health trainer talk to young people very, very um, authentically. I'm very honest with them. I bring some of my own experiences as when I was a young person. And I say, we must take responsibility for our emotional well-being. We must teach young people coping strategies that are healthy so that yes, Life is very unpredictable. It's a, it's a roller coaster. We, none of us knew this was going to happen. And who knows what might happen in the next 10 years. There might be another pandemic in 10 years time. So it's really important that we're teaching young people healthy coping strategies. And I have a 15 year old who'd quite happily sit in his room for five hours gaming in a row. But I do talk to him about the why, why it is important to get out and socialize, even if it's just with one friend going out on a bike ride, why it's important to get fresh air and exercise, why it's important to think about what he's putting in his body in terms of, you know, nutrition. We need to, I think when we give young people the tools, it's amazing what they can do with those tools because it is, you know, I've seen anxiety and depression go through the roof because of my own work. I've seen domestic violence go through the roof. I've seen a lot of parental conflict, lots of difficulties. Um, but on the flip side, there is a lot of support out there. And I think we also have to look at this really in a positive light, because I think if we are too damning about it and too damning and focusing on statistics and how this pandemic is going to affect young people in the long term, that is going to be so anxiety provoking and it's going to intensify at the end of the day, fear and anxiety are intrinsically linked. Um, and we need to we need to teach young people about you know, brain development, what's going on for them while they're developing. So they can take responsibility and understand, actually, this is why I'm feeling anxious. This is how I can manage my anxiety. Okay, so if something happens to me in the future that I can't control, this is how I can control my reaction. This is how I can control what's going on for me. Um, because I do feel this pandemic has brought about a huge amount of anxiety. I mean, I see people outside wearing masks while they're just going for a walk on their own or wearing masks while they're driving. And I think it's absolutely... Um, in my opinion, insane behavior, insane behavior, which has become habitual. And I can guarantee that there'll be many people for years to come who will still be wearing masks while they're walking their dogs or driving in their car on their own. So we need to be quite um, uh, aware of our own behavior because it's what young people, it's filtering to them and, it's, and it's, they're picking up on our own anxieties, our own fears, our own negativities. And, and this is something I think we need to be, you know, very- Can mindful. I come in there, Carol? Uh, I, you know, I, I, I just I disagree with you completely, actually, because uh, where I'm sitting in my mm -hmm. mental health trust, uh, the, the, the increase of budget of mental health, particularly mm -hmm. for uh, child mental health services, it's absolutely appalling. In fact, we've got a five million pound deficit, which we've got to make up, which means actually that uh, a number of clinicians are going to have to be made redundant in order to uh, fulfill that. Actually, quite a lot, because five million quid is a lot. Um, you know, mental health services for children are absolutely appalling. 
there's very little uh, support for, for children. And um, I think that, uh, of course, there's some, uh, we don't want to overly uh, create a, a sort of a, a, a lot of unnecessary anxiety. I agree with you on that. But I think we also need to um, recognize reality. And I think sort of over-optimism uh, is just not, uh, not need, neither is that helpful for young people no, no, I, I who don't are really, you know, who are really, really struggling. I mean, yeah. um, I, I, there know, has to be fine balance, absolutely. You know, like, uh, say you're in first, the first year of university and you've had to uh, stay at home, for example, or go and uh, live in a residence where, you know, there's absolute mayhem because, you know, um, everybody is just running amok and uh, there, there aren't the proper, uh, there isn't the proper teaching. Uh, what if you're struggling, you know, you're thinking, how, where, what kind of job am I going to get as, at the end of all of this as a, as a young person, you know? So, um, and that sort of reinforces bonds with, you know, sort of parents, you know, and, and that might be good in a way, but it also sort of prevents the ordinary detachment, which is a really necessary part of individuation. Yeah. So I think we haven't even begun to see the oh, no, I significant problems of, of yeah. children and young and people. And Stephen, I work with a lot of local services. I work with CAMS. I work with a huge amount of services in Hertfordshire. So I completely am aware of the lack of budget, the lack of funding, the strain on services. But at the same token, what I'm trying to say is that in the whole year that I've been doing my job, we have, just for the My Local Mind, we've added three new services for young people to support them during the pandemic. The adult services, they've added four new services, including more crisis services for, for adults. So... Yes, there's a lot of strain, but I do think there's been quite a bit of support out there. And I agree, there needs, there needs to be much more done for, for services for young people. I'm on par with you. I'm not saying there is lots of help out there because I, I know from a parental perspective that it needs to be improved. But I know that a lot of services are doing their utmost in many cases and really are trying to support young people and their families at the moment. And I certainly agree that we haven't seen the, the impact just yet there's going to be a lot more to come I totally agree with you but on the same on the same token there are there are children who go through way worse situations than 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 COVID you know lots of lots of trauma lots of difficult situations in life and they turn around and they be and and you know they show resilience I'm not saying it's it's always the case but people can show resilience in difficult times and and if they have the right support and they have the right resources you know, life can... Obviously... For every person who shows resilience, there are others who fall by the wayside. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, like, for example, uh, if there's an increase in divorces, I mean, you might say that those marriages were already fragile, mm. but the fact that the marriage breaks uh, is also associated. You know, children in, uh, from divorced homes have a greater likelihood of developing mental health problems uh, reduced uh, performance uh, academically, reduced life expectancy, reduced uh, economic uh, prosperity later in life. So, yes and uh, no. I, I'm not so sure I agree because I come from a divorced family and I did very, very well at school. Yeah, but you're taking your own case. So you're a resilient person. But you've just got to look at the statistics, Carol. You've got to look at the statistics. You might be talking about yourself there, but no, you know, the fact is that the research, 
can I just finish? The research itself says that, uh, that, that divorce is associated with those negative outcomes. So you can't use yourself as an example. I'm not just using myself, Stephen. Uh, I want to say, know? is it better for people to get divorced if they are damaging their children, if they have a toxic and healthy marriage, then stay together if it's affecting the children because that actually inadvertently is going to affect their mental health more so. In fact, sometimes divorcing is better for children in the long run if the family life is dysfunctional and the relationship is impacting the children's mental health. I would say that actually it's probably better in some cases. So we could go down this route, but you know, I, I hear it from your perspective, but then I also have a lot of friends who come from divorced uh, parents who are very happy, who have very successful relationships, who have very fantastic careers, you know. So I think mental health issues can come from lots of different different things. It can come from trauma, it can come from abuse, it can come from divorce, it can come from bullying, it can come from lots of different things. So we can't just... But you're just talking anecdotally. I'm talking about the statistics. I don't focus too much on statistics because I think statistics can be very damning and they can be very damaging. And if we just focused on stats all our lives, what kind of a life would that be? We wouldn't be very positive. We wouldn't be very, you know, content or, or happy. If we just, if I just focused on all the mental health stats, when I'm, deli I deliver suicide prevention training to youth professionals. If I just focused on all the national statistics and all the local stats that come out through the Hearts Audit, Hertfordshire Audit every year, can you imagine how those people would feel? I'm delivering to youth professionals. I'm delivering to foster carers who have children. But that's, you see, the thing care. is the... Guys I, think I'm gonna, uh, guys, I think I'm just going to move on to... <laughs> we could have a debate for a long time, yeah. If you, if you don't that, mind, the, as much as I... The problem I'm with really... damning, you know, the problem with doing away with statistics is that, and basic th basing things on anecdotal evidence, is that you land up with fake news, basically. Well, I don't know. You know I what I'm, different perspectives, what I'm... and we have to agree to disagree, I'm afraid. <laughs> what I'm struck with in this is, you know... The statement around many relationships have gone under extreme stress, and it's not COVID. COVID contributed, but yes. the problem there to begin with. I, what I'm hearing when I, I listen to this, it, I hadn't really considered is that's true across the boards at a personal level too. Any stressors, uh, if you're prone to depression or OCD or so many different things that people struggle with, are under increased pressure in isolation, which exacerbates the situation. Mm -hmm. But also for many people, and I see this with clients, they suddenly realize this is a problem and are getting help around it or looking at addressing the individual problem that they've been able to neglect or ignore up to this point with only their own face to see in the mirror. Mm -hmm. Suddenly there's this awareness around mental and emotional health. Uh, if there's one thing that, and I'm not looking for the silver lining, but I do see a lot more people paying attention to it because of the stressors that COVID and isolation have created. And I, I see that as a positive thing, mm -hmm. but even more so, we are all so different and each approach is so individual to our own internal thought process and emotional process that a certain amount of this isn't gonna be addressed from the outside. It's gonna to have to be addressed from the inside with guidance or not. 
but it certainly is in the windscreen right now in terms of how healthy are you? How healthy is your environment? How healthy emotionally are you able to let go of those stressors or reconcile them in some way or another? And that's directly dependent on the way we lived before and the coping skills that we developed to deal with a pre-pandemic world. Uh, I, I mean, Snake, it's, it's a bit like a, it's like a sort of a, it's like a bridge which is being stress tested, right? Exactly. And uh, in some ways that's a good thing because then you know how resilient you are. But I suppose sometimes the bridge might break under the pressure and you might never, the, the bridge might have been fine had the pressure been less. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I guess sometimes uh, you've got, it's quite okay for the bridge not to be tested with that weight. Yeah. yeah. So we haven't got much longer left, but I've got another great question here from Caroline, which is how can we recognize when we need to seek help versus managing our well-being ourselves? Maybe if uh, you guys could comment on that just before we wrap up. Can you repeat the question, Steve? Yeah, sure. When do we know, when can we recognize that we need to seek help versus managing our well-being ourselves? When's that kind of tipping point? Sadly, I see a lot of people, when the distress gets too unbearable, they seek help rather than being proactive when they simply can't tolerate what's going on inside or through their head, they reach out. But it's amazing the tolerance people have for suffering within themselves and in isolation. I'd love to see people encouraged to, to take it elsewhere, to, to interact with other people, uh, to trust in that way, whether it's a professional or a friend, but to get it off their chest and so few are willing to be vulnerable enough or reveal that much about who they are. And that's a shame, contributes to the dysfunction. And Ronnie, do you have a take on that from your work when people should seek help as opposed to trying to manage their well-being themselves? Well, with my work, I mean, I work with professionals who um, support, particularly in communication, who communicate and support with people in emotionally challenging situations. So things like breaking bad news. Um, But I think um, basically, uh, sorry, say the question again. (laughs) (laughs) Is there a point when people recognise? Yes, recognise. Yeah, I mean, I, I just I saw been researching um, the I've just been kind of researching and, and developing a course um, for professionals. And part of that actually for interpreters and part of that is um, the risk um, people run of um, vicarious trauma, um, secondary trauma, you know, from supporting people going through difficulty, but also compassion fatigue and burnout. Um, and that, you know, that's actually quite interesting um, relating to COVID. You know, I think, you know, even just myself, I feel like I was sort of all open at the beginning and, and, and reading the news and people's stories. And then after a while, I just felt like, oh, my God, it's just too much. You know, um, I need to sort of shut down a bit. But I mean, 
I think one of the things we've sort of been developing is kind of like a sort of traffic light system. It sounds a bit simplistic, but to really understand, um, you know, the, the, the sort of warning signs in oneself, um, you know, so, you know, if green was your, your healthy self, you know, where you feel uh, a sense of well-being, you're happy, you're, you feel, you know, a sense of balance um, in your life between your responsibilities and your activities, your relationships. So if green is, is feeling great and feeling okay, then what's your amber feel like? You know, what does your amber feel like? So, you know, we're, we're all different. For some people, it might be um, that you end up, you know, drinking a bit more. You know, for some people, you could start, you know, it can be this insidious, but you could just start a bit of online shopping and it can start, you know, more and more and more. You might be arguing more with your with your partner. You, you know, you might be ruminating a lot more and just a, a, a sense of, of, of low mood and anxiety. So I think it's before we get to that red, before we get to the alert, we find ourselves in a position where we, you know, we're really in trouble. It is what we do about it. Um, and I think historically, you know, there's a huge amount of stigma around mental health. And, and you know, I don't know, I don't know about elsewhere, but particularly in, in, in Britain, in the UK, you know, we've got historically, it's a stiff upper lip. You, you know, you don't, you don't want to discuss your, you know, dirty laundry, dirty washing in, in public. You know, there's a lot of that baggage probably much more so for men than, than for women. Um, maybe it's easier for, for women to reach out. Certainly, you know, probably statistically, women tend to talk more to other women. Um, and so it's easier to externalize. The importance of externalizing is huge, you know? So yes, I mean, it's difficult and it's gonna be different in each person's situation. Um, but I do think with myself, you know, I go back to my when talking about having a form of OCD. Um, I mean, regardless of COVID, you know, I, I lived with this and was able to live with it and, and work um, and feeling like, you know, it was OK, I could get on with it for quite a number of years. And then it was really it was adopting a child and the issues that that brought up in my own life from, you know, triggered by my own you know, obviously my own childhood experiences as well, that um, it really exacerbated it. And it really started to, um, you know, become a, a real problem. But even then, even then, I, um, I didn't want to seek help. I wanted to sort it out myself. So I don't know if I'm, you know, uh, a good example, you know, I'm, I'm sort of like most other people, but I, I, I think I probably am. I think probably people will want to try and find a way to sort it out rather than seek help. I mean, everyone's different. But eventually I, you know, I just had to because it was just too much. And of course, that help is going to be different for everyone. And, you know, we all have to in the end, even when you seek help and you have some therapy, you still have to work hard. You know, it's not no, some nobody else is going to be able to sure you can you can get a great help a great professional that's going to guide you and give you some tools and but you have to do it yourself you know um i don't want to hog this um space because i'm sure there's lots of people that have got comments on this and some great um you know uh, wisdom out there but i just really if i can just briefly talk about something that has really helped me 
Um, I'm slightly going off the question, I know. But for, for recently, for my, um, for my work, I ended up researching self-compassion and the impact of that on mental health and emotional well-being. And this kind of collided with me, you know, finding ways to deal with my own situation, particularly in lockdown with homeschooling and the pressures. So, um, uh, that, you know, there's been, I, I'm kind of embarrassed to admit it, but um, I think I've managed to live my whole life not realizing that the way I talk to myself has a huge impact on, on my, on my well being. I don't know how I missed that. Um, but, you know, I, I've been looking into research that links, you know, self-criticism and rumination with um, mental health condition, you know, anxiety, depression, that sort of thing. Um, and there's been research recently from the University of Exeter that found that self-compassion not only promotes a sense of well-being and um, uh, um, yeah, sense of well-being, basically a connection with others. That's what I was going to say. But but it but it also found that it lowers heart rate and sweat response. So really, um, uh, you know, putting, you know, uh, helping us achieve a greater sense of calm and, and improving immune response. So I've been looking into the work of um, a researcher called Kristen Neff, who um, advocates using self-compassion in response to negative events and suffering. So I've, I've experimented on myself and it's been incredible um, actually what, what's, what's happened. So she breaks very quickly, she breaks self-compassion down in, into three steps. So one is mindful awareness. So neither kind of losing yourself in your suffering or denying it or having a drink, suppressing it. Um, stating it clearly for what it is and how you feel. So what's happened and how you feel. And then the second step, which is really interesting, particularly in relation to COVID, is what she calls common humanity. So the importance of acknowledging that none of us are perfect, that the world isn't perfect, that human beings make mistakes, that things don't work out as we want. Um, and then finally, the third step is um, to be to talk to ourselves like we would talk to a friend who was going through the same thing. Um, now, recently, I last week, I, I had an event where I lost it with my daughter when she was going to bed. And um, she, you know, I asked her to go to bed six times. She ignored me. Um, she was rude to me and I was really tired and I lost my temper. I ended up saying a load of stuff I didn't mean. I felt absolutely terrible. Um, and with myself, when that sort of thing happens, I can just go into such a dark place. I'm lost for a couple of hours. The way I can talk to myself, I'm so horrible to myself. Um, as a sort of way of kind of punishing myself and somehow, you know, a kind of penitence. Um, so I've been really trying to turn that round. And I think in COVID times, we all have, you know, we've, it's not natural to be separated from our communities. You know, we, we, we don't sort of meet a friend out of the pub or a person at the school gates who can, we can talk to and they say, you know, don't worry, I did that yesterday. Come on, you're not that bad. You're a good, you're a good mum, you know. So we lose that balance and we're left with our own, our own selves. And so um, I think it's been really interesting trying to do that. And I've forced myself to sit down with a pen and paper and go through those steps. 
And actually I did that that night and I've been doing it ever since. And it's had an extraordinary effect. In fact, my OCD um, has been so much better. Um, I've actually felt calmer. I felt a bit kinder. Um, and, uh, and also I've been able to do things to nurture myself, which I have just been trying to do for years, but not managing things like giving up caffeine. Um, and I've actually managed to do it. And it's really not been, been a, a kind of hassle. So I don't know if that's of interest to anyone, um, but I've, it's been extraordinary actually. It's had an extraordinary impact. So thanks for listening to that. I too have given up caffeine in the last three or four months and can report dramatic effects. Thank you very much, Ronnie. Um, Snake, Mike, anything? We have only got a few minutes left, but anything more to add on this topic? It feels like we haven't scratched the surface that you, you know what we've spoken about childcare, spoken about relationships. We haven't even gone on to grief or redundancy and topics like this, but it seems that the conversation, at least with regards to COVID and mental health, is now looking forward as much as anything else. I mean, Snake, Mike, what do you think? Yeah, I would agree. I, I think, you know, we started out talking about the storm really hasn't passed yet. And so being mindful about our own proclivities one way or another or our own situation and our emotional posture in the world right now, I think is incredibly important to pay attention to. Uh, you know, one of the reasons I use emotional compression and decompression as somewhat of a metaphor is I think it's very important we're going through change most of us clench up when change because it's an unfamiliar. The emotional reaction that we have to the massive change that's going on in our lives and in our cultures right now is going to stress those things and then uh, to pay attention. And I think also to get through that stigma and ask for help, interaction, some way to come out of your own head in order to reconcile the stressors and anxiety that you feel. So I'd leave it with that. Mike? Well, <clears throat> I'm sitting here feeling really sad, actually, is the truth of it. And I, I want to I speak to that very briefly. Um, you know, earlier on, you heard what I said, that I do think there's something really positive about COVID um, because it really gives us that opportunity to look deeply into oh. ourselves and each other. So, you know, I'm fully supportive of what I said earlier on, but I also sit here feeling sad and very scared because I, I don't think we have any idea of what this fallout is gonna actually look like over the next six to eight years. And those are conversations I've already had with Snake, but there's something to be said about, is there something, is there something to be said about really not wanting to address the future, and when I say the future, I am talking about between the next five and 10 years, or is there, or are we just simply in denial and are we just waiting to crash and burn? So that's the kind of position that I take up based on this conversation. And I'm, I'm just hoping, and I appreciate the people have arrived, but what I'm hoping is that this podcast reaches a very large um, amount of people internationally, because I think 
this is the conversation that we are having now that needs to be, it needs to already be had or at least start this conversation, but on a global scale. And of course, I'm very curious to know what Stephen's view is and uh, anyone else's view, but I feel scared and very sad. That's the position I take up. Thank you very much, everyone. Uh, we're going to leave it on that that bombshell from Mike. Uh, lots more to talk about on these various subjects, and that's certainly something that we will be doing on the Wisdom Track podcast and on the BAM website throughout this year. We will be back next time on April the 24th, talking about relationships. That's Saturday at 4 p.m. Going to be a Zoom cast as well. And our following podcast, let me just double check, the date is on the 22nd of May, and that's about gaslighting. What is it really, and what does it mean to people with anger issues? But first, April the 24th, Keeping Love Alive About Relationships. You can read Snake's blog on that right now. I'm even going to pop it in the chat. Look at that for techno efficiency. Everybody, thank you so much for joining us. I trust that your mental health between now and when I see you next on April the 24th is as buoyant as it can be. You've been on the Wisdom Track Zoomcast from the British Association of Anger Management, angermanage.co.uk. Have a wonderful weekend, everybody. Bye-bye. That was Ronnie Turner, Dr. Stephen Blumenthal, Snake Bloomstrand, Mike Fisher, and me, Steve Bill, discussing mental health in the age of COVID for the Wisdom Track podcast. You can join our next podcast live on Zoom on April 24th when we'll be talking about how to keep love alive. You can register for that over at our website www.angermanage.co.uk. Take a look in our blog section or better still sign up for our newsletter. Whatever channel you're listening on please hit the like button and subscribe if you can. These things are very important for getting the talks out there to other people who might benefit from them. From everyone at the British Association of Anger Management, thanks very much for listening and see you next month.